let us start with the um, Mangalacharan, the, Sha the Shanti Mantra. Om Bhadram Karnebhi Shrinuyama Deva Bhadram Pashe Makshabhirya Jatra Sthirai Rangai Stushwagam Sastanubhihi Vyashema Devahitain Yadayuhu Swastina Indro Vridhashrava Swastina Pusha Vishwaveda Swasti Nastarksho Arishtanemi Swasti Nobrihaspatir Dadhatu Om Shanti 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 So we are studying the Mandukya Karika and in the third chapter what Gaurapada is trying to do is prove the truth of non-duality with the help of reasoning. So he's using reasoning to show that, that reality is actually non-dual. Which is a difficult task because we immediately perceive that it is not so. It seems to be plural. Plural means there are many, many entities and different seems to be there everywhere. And he wants to show that this is an appearance and actually it is non-dual. Um, in the process of doing that, he is now in a critique of duality. A critique of duality is going on. That's what we saw in the last uh, um, uh, class. Critique of duality means he is criticizing the dualistic philosophies, the dualistic teachings which hold that uh, ultimately dualism is right. Dualism, I mean, by this I mean God is different, you are different, the world is different, the way it appears to be. This is the ultimate truth. So those philosophies, and there were many of those teachers um, in India at that time, the Sankhya, the Nyaya, the, the, uh, the Yoga, Vaisheshika, Mimamsa, all of these schools, they were dualists, metaphysically speaking. So he's criticizing that. Why is he criticizing that? He says, uh, from, from Gaudapada is very clear that moksha, liberation, Ultimate freedom is not possible in dualism. It's possible only in non-dualism. Why is it not possible in dualism? Because he says, look at the, the conception of the dualistic philo uh, philosophers. What is their idea of freedom? By the way, just as an aside here, um, Gaurapada has this very interesting technique throughout. When he refutes, uh, when he refutes an opposing school, he uses their logic. Uh, so he says, we... Whatever the opponent claims, he takes it, yes, that is real. I mean, he, not that is real. He takes it as, all right, let's, let's assume that is so. Then see what follows. So suppose you say um, liberation or moksha in dualistic schools. Let us listen to them. What do they say? What is their moksha like? You, there is a heaven, there is God. Um, and... You go to heaven after death. It's a different place. You have to wait for, for going there and so on. Ultimately, you go to heaven and in heaven, the difference, dualism is still there. God is different. You are different. Yes, it's a blessed duality. 
uh, you remain without any suffering in the presence, the blissful presence of God, who is different from you, and in the blissful presence of other uh, Wednesday class people, you know, <laughs> who are also all different from you, all are liberated and all remain in great bliss in the presence of this God, maybe singing praises um, or playing the harp or whatever. And it's not just Christian heaven, Islamic heaven, the Vaikuntha of the Vaishnavas, the Kailasha of the Shaivites, all of these, uh, they all are like that. So you notice that dualism is present there. Uh, you don't, the, the difference is not erased, difference is there. Which is so, well if so, if there's difference, then notice there is a difference in time. Heaven is not now but later, after death. Heaven is not here, not this thing, something else. That where there is time and space and difference is definitely limited. There must be change. If there is time, there must be change. If there is change, then there must be the possibility of, uh, uh, of it ending. If it started, there is a possibility it will end. There is the fear of mortality. If there is the fear of mortality, then notice, fear. Anxiety, so they, that it, it will one day come to an end. If it is not here and it's there, then it's definitely limited in space. There is something which is not that freedom, not that heaven. Uh, it's only in contrast to this that heaven is set up. So it's not an infinite freedom, it's a limited freedom. Then if there is difference, there is better or worse, in, in the Hindu conception there are multiple heavens. And in heaven also, in different, um, all the dualistic religions you find, in heaven also, your stay there is subject to certain differences. There are hmm, holier than thou, there are holier people who are, who are of, uh, better off, maybe, maybe they get a better seat, uh, the, the box in the theatre or something like that, and you get a... You can hardly see the divine show go on. You could get a then. Then you are there's a difference. There there is a hierarchy there too. Um, so the devatas or the angels they have it better than you, even if you are in heaven. Whatever. So there are the multiple multiple hierarchies there too, which leads to what is called raga dvesha, likes and dislikes. I mean, if you you are still in heaven, but if you are asked, would you rather be in that spot in heaven and this spot? You'd say, yeah, that's better. I mean, I'm, I'm a heavenly person, so I don't, I'm not jealous, but I know it's better. <laughs> that might sound silly, uh, silly but uh, the, the seed of that difference is there. And in the Hindu mythologies, we find the gods, are, there's jealousy among the gods, and dislike and jealousy among the gods too. In Greek mythologies, of course, we find, so there's rivalry and jealousy and competition among the gods too. So in dualism, all this is possible. You must at least in principle admit that it is possible then this is not moksha, this is not freedom. If raga dvesha is possible, preferences are possible, jealousy is possible, envy is possible, unhappiness is then possible. Then there is, if there is a beginning, then an end is possible. End means death, death there means coming back from heaven. Now moksha, liberation or heaven is admitted by all dualistic religions, they claimed to be eternal. But a beginning and an end, how can it be eternal? I was in this eternal heaven for a, about a week. No, it can't be. <laughs> Look at your own words. <laughs> you couldn't be in Bahamas for a week. The, that's pretty close, as close as you get to an eternal heaven. <laughs> but 
Uh, no. So, this is Gaudapada's claim. That if, it, if in dualism, their claim of the spiritual journey is from one dualism, this one, to another dualism, a better one. But that is, does not solve the problem. So notice in Vedanta, all sorts of heavens are admitted. They don't doubt that there might be heavens. True, there could be. But going to heaven is not a solution of the problem. So in Vedanta, Gaurapada says that the spiritual journey is not from Dvaita to Dvaita, from dualism to dualism. The spiritual journey is from Dvaita to Advaita. From dualism to non-dualism. From difference to non-difference, to oneness. That is the spiritual journey. He's, he's trying to show that. It immediately follows then that the spiritual journey is not a journey in space. If there is non-difference or non-duality, what is there must be here too. It cannot be a journey in time. What is then must be now too, if it's non-different. It must be beyond space and time. If it is beyond space and time, um, non-duality is always beyond space and time. So it cannot be a journey in time. It cannot be that you have to wait to become liberated. It cannot be that you have to go somewhere to become liberated. It must be here and now. If it is here and now, Advaita claims, then the spiritual journey can only be a journey. I, mean, I have said this many times. It cannot be a journey in space. It cannot be a journey in time. It can only be a journey from ignorance to knowledge. That's what Advaita says. The journey, the, the, what we are trying to change is from not realizing to realizing. The spiritual journey according to Advaita is a kind of waking up. Upanishads themselves say that. It's kind of waking up. You wake up from what then you realize that I was asleep or, or sleepwalking or in dream. Or you snap into a reality. That is the nature of liberation in Advaita. So that's what he has been talking about till now. Um, in the, for example, if you remember in the last class we did this verse where it said that supposing duality, this difference, it was all one, you were, um, this duality suppose is a real duality. It was non-dual to begin with and we fell into a universe of duality. You know, the old myths of every religion has the fall of man from a perfected state to a, like this. And if this fall is real, if we really have come here and then by our spiritual uh, efforts we establish a oneness. So, he says, what good is that? What good is that artificial oneness? Come. He says, note, if the original oneness were such that it could be disturbed into difference, then the new oneness which you have created through your spiritual practices, how good will it be? It's a created, an artificial oneness which you have created. If, if this difference is real and you by your own spiritual efforts, by your prayer, meditation, grace of God or whatever, you, you achieve a kind of oneness, what's to say that that will be stable? If the original oneness was not stable, if you're originally perfect, now you have really become imperfect and you're going to become perfect by certain efforts. What's to say that the produced perfection also will not fall apart? Will almost certainly fall apart. If the original perfection fell apart, this produced perfection also could fall apart. You see, it's a devastating critique of the 
those, those uh, the, the fall of man kind of mythology. There is a meaning to it. That there was some perfection, we have fallen from it. Advaita says the real meaning of it is not that we have truly fallen away, away from our inherent perfection. It's just that we are not aware of it. It's just that we don't realize it. It's just that it's as if we were asleep to our reality. That's it. That reality is still there. It's not gone. So the non-duality is still there. It has to be realized. Now we will come to the next verse. Verse number 23. We did 22 last time. 23. So please repeat after me. Bhūtato bhūtato vāpi Bhūtato bhūtato vāpi Sridhyamāne samāśrutihi Sridhyamāne samāśrutihi Nishchitam yukti yuktam cha Nishchitam yukti yuktam cha Yattad bhavati netarat Yattad bhavati netarat all right. Before I go into this, a little one point. What Advaita claims is a thoroughgoing non-duality. According to Advaita, never has been a time when there was duality. It was non-duality all through, in the past, now, in the future. In fact, past, present and future are time words. We have to use them because we can't speak otherwise. It has never been so that there was duality and now there is real, uh, um, non-duality. No, it's always been non-dual. There never has been a place that it's non-dual here but dualistic there. No. Advaita's claim is that it is everywhere, it is the same non-duality. So there is no scope of duality. There is no, um, in Hindi they say avasar, that means a gap, a possibility. It's a thoroughgoing non-duality, always was. It's just that we are not aware of it. In philosophical language, it means that duality never was create, created. See, when I'm saying duality, you know what I mean? The universe and us as individual being, beings. It is Brahman all the way through, all the time. Never has the jiva, the individual being, ever been created or the world also has never been created, according to Advaita Vedanta. I don't look puzzled. Remember the clay and pot example, the wave and water example? No pot has ever been created apart from the clay. It's clay and clay is true. No ornament is actually there apart from the gold. No wave is actually there apart from water itself, in that sense. There's no separate thing. So there is no separate thing called an individual being. And there is no separate thing called, an, called this pluralistic universe. Philosophically speaking then, Brahman is neither cause nor effect. Brahman was never born as this universe effect. If Brahman was never born as this universe, universe, then Brahman cannot be the parent of a universe also. There's no universe, so what is it a parent of? If there's no son, where is the father? So, Brahman is not a cause either. We have been talking about this throughout. Brahman is neither a cause nor an effect. In Sanskrit, karya, karana, vilakshana. Neither effect nor cause. 
in terms of the Shruti or Upanishads, Brahman is never, is never really a creator of the universe. Brahman is not a creator of the universe because, because there, is no, there is no universe to create. So in that case, Brahman is not a creator. If the universe is not created, if Brahman is not the creator, what are we saying? Then what is there? Brahman alone is there. Neither created nor created. But here the question will be, just a minute, the Upanishads, the source texts of Vedanta, all of them, just about all of them, talk about creation. All the Upanishads, uh, many of the, uh, most of the Upanishads actually, they have an account of creation. Where did this multiplicity come from? And they say that it all came from Brahman. So they talk about the multiplicity coming and they talk about it coming from Brahman. Therefore, Brahman is the cause of this universe. The universe is an effect and the universe was created because your own Upanishads say it. So after all, are you not teaching Vedanta? Vedanta is based on the Upanishads. You see the question? When you see the question, the answer will make sense. What does Gaudapada say to this? Say to what? What does he say to the question that then why do the Upanishads talk about creation? What Gaudapada says is a very nuanced argument. He says that we do not deny the appearance of duality. That this duality appears to you, we do not deny it. It appears. We all experience it. It would be crazy to deny it. What I'm seeing, if Advaita says, no, you're not seeing it. It's um, out with you. <laughs> I am seeing it. What Advaita denies is not the experience of duality. Advaita denies the reality of duality. By which I mean, just if it sounds confusing, no, it's not confusing. When you are seeing so many things and people in your dreams, if somebody comes and challenges, they, they are not challenging that you are seeing it. What they are challenging is, is it real or is it a dream? That's possible entirely. Nowadays, virtual reality. You are experiencing so many things around you and you are there in a particular environment with objects and people around. But you know it's not real. So you are seeing it, but it's not real. There is a reality underlying it. Just as there is the reality of waking underlying the dream. So you can experience a dream and challenge the reality of the dream altogether. You can experience the snake and challenge whether it's a real snake or not. You can experience the mirage water and challenge whether it's real water or not. It's entirely possible. That's what we are doing actually. That's what Advaita is doing. Advaita does not deny that, that you experience multiplicity, experience plurality. But it denies whether this plurality which you are experiencing, is it real? That's what, it, what is it's denying. Yes. Uh, I'm coming to that, coming to that. Then, then what happens to the question? Why do the Upanishads talk about the multiplicity? Now Advaita says, Gaudapada says, that the Upanishads, they try to explain our experience of multiplicity. My question is, is the, Advaita says, when the Upanishads are talking about creation, is it a real creation they are talking about or is it an apparent creation? Is it a real creation they are talking about? or an apparent creation. You are seeing something. Nobody denies that. But what you are seeing, is it real or is it an illusion? Or is it an appearance? The Dvaitin, the dualist will say, when the universe, when the Upanishads talk about the creation of the universe, God creating the universe, they mean a real creation. 
God has really created something apart from God, a creation. When the, the non-dualist will say, when the Upanishads talk about creation, they do. When they talk about creation, they are talking about an apparent creation. So the debate is not whether the Upanishads talk about creation or not. They do. There is no doubt about it. The debate is not whether you see multiplicity or not. There is no doubt about it. You do see multiplicity. Even the enlightened person will also with these eyes see many things. With these ears hear many things. With these, this tongue taste many things. Obviously, even an enlightened person will, will do that. The sense organs are meant to give you information about the world. But what is the knowledge or the, the realization of the enlightened person? That all this multiplicity is an appearance of one thing. Similarly, the Upanishadic sayings which talk about the creation of the universe, do they mean that it's really created? Or do they mean it's an apparent creation? You might ask, why would you even ask such a question? If they're talking about the creation of the universe, they obviously mean the universe was really created. No, 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 no. That's not the teaching methodology of the Upanishads. Uh, the teaching methodology of the, of the Upanishads is, they start from where you are, from what we see, what we accept as real. They start there and then step by step they take us to their conclusion, what they want to say. So to understand the teaching of the Upanishads, you must take it as a whole. You can't take it here. The Upanishads are speaking about the creation of the universe. So the universe is, the Brahman is the creator, the universe is created, finished, dualism. No, no, no. Read the whole thing. Where, does it, where is it pointing towards? What, what is the conclusion? In the Taittiriya Upanishad, for example, a classic example I'll give. Taittiriya Upanishad, the Panchakosha Viveka, the analysis of the five sheets of the human personality. I hope you know what I'm talking about and not totally at loss. Analysis of the five sheets of the human personality. The food sheet, Annamaya Kosha. The vital sheet, Pranamaya Kosha. The mental sheet, I can't show you, <laughs> uh, unless you are a telepath, Manomaya Kosha. But it's, we are all, it's all evident to us, we, within, inside when we look, there's a mind. Beyond that, the intellect, the Vigyanamaya Kosha. Beyond that, the causal body, the Anandamaya Kosha. Beyond that, and so on, it goes like that. But if you look at the Upanishad itself, when it teaches, what is the inquiry there? Who am I? What am I? Atman. What is the Atman means the self. What is the Atman? That's the inquiry there in the Taittiriya Upanishad. At each of these five stages, it says, this is the Atman. Instead of saying this is a covering or a sheath, it says this is the Atman. The sheath word came much later. Upanishad, the original Upanishad just says the food Atman, the Annamaya Atma. This body is the self. You are the body. Now, if anybody stops there, aha, the Upanishad has said that we are the body. So, Upanishad says we are bodies. That's it, finished. That's unfair. Don't stop there. If you go a little further, just the next paragraph, it says the body is not the Atman. Where did it say that? It says, Anyuantaratma Pranamayaha. Other than this, inert to this, Anya means other, Antara means inner, Atma, the self, is the Pranamaya. That means body is not the self anymore. If it's other than the body, if it's inner to the body, then the Atman is something different from the body. Just see, it, can't, it, it repudiated what it started with. It started with body is the self, now it's saying the Prana is the self. Next, you know what will happen. It will say the prana is not the self. The mind is the self. The mind is not the self. The intellect is the self. The intellect is not the self. And the, the anandamaya is the self. And so on it goes. 
What is it doing? What is it doing? Why is it saying one thing and denying it the next moment? It's teaching. It's leading us towards a reality, inner reality. So why couldn't it say straight away? If it says straight away, it did say straight away. Satyam jnanam anantam brahma. Brahman is the is infinite existence consciousness. We will say, aha, uh-huh, what is that? So the Upanishad says, okay, I got it. I see, I see where the problem is. What is evident to you? Is the body evident to you? Yes, start there. And therefore, step by step, the Upanishad takes you in. And therefore, to know the meaning of the Upanishad, you can't take one thing out of a context and say that is the teaching of the Upanishad. So you have to take the whole thing. There is a process of extracting the meaning from an Upanishadic passage. There is a whole process. So you read the whole thing and then you say it's talking about the Atman, the pure consciousness, apart from the five sheets which were mentioned, the five, five levels. Similarly, with the, with the Shruti, get used to this word. Shruti means the Vedic passages, the Vedic texts are called Shruti. Here the Upanishads are called Shruti. Shruti literally means that which was heard. So the Shruti texts dealing with creation are just steps in teaching. Just as body is the Atman, prana is the Atman, these are steps in teaching. Upanishad doesn't want you to stop there. It will be disastrous if you stop there. Read the whole thing through to the conclusion. Like a mathematical proof. So you, sometimes you assume something that's, compl- that's completely wrong. Let the let the sum of the three angles of a triangle be more than 360 degrees. Okay. If you stop there, no. It will come to a reductio ad absurdum and so therefore the sum of the angles of the triangle cannot be other than 360 degrees. Of course it can be depending on what kind of geometry you are doing. It's only after we graduate from school we know the other geometries also. Um, all right. Yes. Yeah, I just finished reading a translation. I don't know if it was good or not of the pain major Upanishads. And they basically all say the same. They yes. They talk about the cosmic self. But they take you through it by stories. So each of the Upanishads... Very good. Notice what she said. They all say the same thing. Remember that. Okay, go on. Yeah, it all boils down to... It arrives always at the cosmic self at the end. Correct. And each Upanishad, it seems, at least the ten major ones that I read the translation, it's, it takes you there through different stories. So it's a storytelling. Stories... Uh, there are other things too, stories, arguments, um, examples, uh, things like that. And terminology, different terminology for each of the Upanishads. But they all boil down to, she said one thing, yes. Yeah, I, I read an English translation, mm. so I don't know if it was of the whole or just like a condensed version, so that I don't know. How Doesn't matter, you have got the essence of it. <laughs> yes, alright. Now, it's good that you said that, because the next thing I'm going to say is, so you are saying the real battle is within, within these two positions. The dualists say that the creation texts, Shruti, Srishti Shruti in Sanskrit, creation texts, they refer to a real creation. And the non-dualists are saying it's just a way of teaching. It's not a real creation they're talking about. Ultimately, they point to that, that, that self, the self. Um, how do you decide? So the question is, what is the purport, what is the essential, what does it boil down, what is the one thing that it boils down to? Is there duality or non-duality? What does it boil down to? Real creation or, not, or, or uh, an apparent creation? 
how do you decide? She read it and um, she got it, but how did she get it? So the question is, how do you interpret a text? How do you interpret a text? We'll go into that. Let us just see the verse itself now. It'll make sense. 23. Bhutato abhutato vapi srijyamane samashrutihi. Shrutihi, the Vedanta texts, the Upanishadic texts in different Upanishads. They talk about creation. There's no doubt about it. Even the non-dualist cannot deny that they talk about creation. But is that creation a real creation or an apparent creation? Bhutato, Satya. Satya Srishti in Sanskrit. Abhutato, apparent, not, not a matter of fact. On this subject, um, Sama Shrutihi, the text is neutral. The text is neutral. Neutral means nowhere does the Upanishad clearly say that yes, this is real. Or nowhere does the Upanishad say, no, this is false. How do you decide then? You decide by what some, something that she has unconsciously done. We all do when you systematically read something, we all do it. It is called textual interpretation. There is a, an English word for it. There's a whole science of it. It's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. In ancient India, there was a school of philosophy, Purva Mimamsa. Purva Mimamsa. In fact, there were six schools of orthodox Hindu philosophy. We know the names Nyaya, Vaisheshika, um, Sankhya, Yoga, Purva Mimamsa, and Uttara Mimamsa. The Uttara Mimamsa is more familiarly known as. Vedanta, yes, the Vedanta society. So, Purva and Uttara, the word Mimamsa means um, analysis. In Sanskrit, the meaning is Pujita Vichara, reverential inquiry. Mimamsa is a reverential inquiry. In many Indian languages, the word Mimamsa still, is still there. It's an old Sanskrit word, it's still retained in many Indian languages. I know in Bengali it means to solve a problem, to arrive at a conclusion. Any other Indian languages? Hindi? Similar meaning. Any other languages? Mimamsa? Summarize. Summarize. You see, the meanings are pretty similar. Summarize. To solve or to conclude. To draw something out of it. Essence out of it. That is Mimamsa. Now, what is this Purva Mimamsa and Uttara Mimamsa? Remember, the Vedas, which are a vast bulk of literature, can be broadly divided into two parts. The Karmakanda and the Jnanakanda. The part dealing with rituals and the part dealing with knowledge. The part dealing with knowledge is what we are trying to do. The text we are studying now, Mandukya Upanishad, Mandukya, Mandukya Upanishad itself, is a part of which part? Jnanakanda, knowledge part. The ritual part we have not touched. We don't study. I also not studied in any detail. And you're glad you, are, you have not studied. It's, it's bewildering. It's vast and bewildering. And, and more, of course, it would be, you'd be at a loss at what it means here in modern America, 21st century America. In 21st century India also people would be at a loss. Because that kind of ritualism has more or less disappeared more than two to 3,000 years ago. 
Um, it was replaced by the ritualism of the modern Hindu. What you see when you go to a Hindu temple, they elaborate pujas. They are based on the original Vedic ritualism, but they have changed. They have evolved over thousands of years. But broadly based on these two parts of the Vedas, two schools of philosophy developed. One school of philosophy based on the ritualistic portion of the Vedas, that is called Purva Mimamsa. Purva means earlier. An analysis or the summary, summation of the earlier portion of the Vedas. And Mimamsa is basically an inquiry into the text to extract the meaning of the text. And Uttara Mimamsa, Vedanta, it means uh, inquiry into the latter portion of the text. The latter portion of the text are the Upanishads, which we are doing now. Why am I saying all this? Because it was those guys, the Purva Mimamsakas, they developed the techniques which we are applying now. Because they were faced with this bewildering mass of texts. How do we draw, logically draw some meaning out of these texts? So they developed machinery, linguistic machinery, procedures, algorithms if you will, to find the meaning of a text and very interesting. You will notice that it's basically what we do when we study, seriously study any text. And this machinery can actually be used to process any good, if you have a serious text, you want to know the meaning of that. If you put it through this, you will get some meaning out of it. So it's a procedure for finding out the meaning of texts. I have not spoken of this earlier, I think. Um, do you remember? In Vedanta, we talk about three stages, Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana. Shravana means hearing or study. And actually, I just leave it at that, hearing or study. But actually, a traditional Pandit would say, study is a systematic study. What systematic study? What is the system? The system is this, which I'm going to talk about. I, I don't think I mentioned this earlier. So this system is actually not developed by Vedanta. It is developed by Purva Mimamsa. We have borrowed it from them. I sometimes say, Vedanta is uh, like the hero of the Indian systems, but it stands like, uh, I think, who said that? Einstein or somebody? I stand on the shoulders of giants. Newton, Newton said it. I stand on the, so Newton said he stands on the shoulders of giants. That's why you can see so far. Similarly, Vedanta stands on the shoulders of the earlier philosophies. If you see Vedanta, if you open up the box of Vedanta, the fine logic and, and the argumentation, the whole thing is based on work done by the Nyaya philosophers. You just taken that from them. The, the apparent world of Maya, you want to understand this, the physics of this world, is based on the Vaisheshika philosophers. The idea of pure consciousness, which is so central to Vedanta, is not developed by Vedanta, it's taken from Sankhya philosophers. The meditative techniques used by Vedantins are taken entirely from, you can tell me, yoga, yoga philosophers. And the method of understanding our precious Upanishads, the techniques of study, they are taken from Purvami Mamsaka. So all of that, and take all of that, put it together, put Brahman Tattva Masi on the top and stamp it Vedanta. <laughs> oh, such a nice product, very nice. Open it up, look at the parts, made in China. <laughs> and that's credit to China, I'm saying. <laughs> so 
is Vedanta just taken the best from different philosophies and put it together and put it put a label on it. <laughs> That's us. It's not us. So let's see what the Purva Mimamsakas have contributed. What are we seeing here? The method of study, of extracting the meaning from a text. Why are we interested? Because right now our problem is, the text is the same. From Brahman came the world. But does it mean a real world or an apparent world? How do you know? Only by applying this. Look. What does it say? And it's called a six-fold system. The six-fold system. In Sanskrit, Shadvidhalinga. One. First one is, I'll write the Sanskrit and tell you the English meaning. Upakrama Upasanghara. What does it mean? Beginning and end. Beginning and end. Second, I'll explain each one. Abhyasa. No, it does not mean practice. Immediately jump to the conclusion. If you don't know Sanskrit, you're safe. If you know Sanskrit, you'll jump to the wrong conclusion. Abhyasa does not mean practice here. Abhyasa means repetition. Which is why it is called practice in, in uh, ordinary usage. But the original meaning of, Vedic meaning of Abhyasa is repetition. Repeating something. Abhyasa. Number three. I will say, how to, I will tell you how to apply these. Apurvata. 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 Uniqueness. Unique feature. What uniqueness? The unique message here. Number four, um, Upapatti, 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 which means reasoning, argumentation. Number five, Atthapatti, Atthapatti, which means eulogy or praise, eulogy or praise. E-U-L-O-G-Y, praise, eulogy. What is the advertisement? What's being advertised here? Number six. Phalam, result. Phalam, result. Phalam, result. Now using these six, um, six-fold, using the six-fold system, you are to extract the meaning of a text. Decide this wrangle, whether they are talking about a real creation or an unreal creation. By the way, when I say texts talking about creation, we have come across them. Taittiriya Upanishad says, Tasmad ba etasmad atmana akasha sambhuta. From that, from that Brahman, which is this very Atman, the sp space was born or space arose. Akashadvayu vayo ragni agne rapa adhya prithivi. From space came fire, uh, from a wind or, or, or uh, air. From the air came fire, from fire came uh, water and from the water earth. The, the primitive cosmology which most civilizations shared. 
But notice the, in, the important point here. It is saying all of them came from the Atman or from Brahman. Now the question is, are they serious or not serious? <laughs> How do we know? How do we decide? Because the Shruti, Shruti Samaha, it said, it is neutral there. You have to decide. How do you decide? By using this, we'll see. Another Upanishad, the Mundaka Upanishad. Um, Yathornanabhi Srijate Grinhate Cha Yatha Prithivyam Oshadhaya Sambhavanti Yatha Sadah Purushat Kesha Lomani Tathaksharat Sambhavati Havishwam Very beautiful, poetic. As the spider projects and withdraws its web, as shrubs and plants emerge from the earth, as indeed the hair and nails emerge from a living body, so from the imperishable aksharat emerges this cosmos. So, but clearly, no, for our purpose, the dualist will say, aha, the cosmos emerges from the, the imperishable being. So is it, do they really mean it or not? And the dualist has the first shot at it. He'd say that, why wouldn't they mean it? They're saying it, so they mean it. Here is the cosmos and it says it has come from Brahman. So Brahman is the creator, is God who has created the universe. That's it. But no, not so fast. You'll have to, you can't just take that and stop. You have to see the whole thing in context. How do you apply this? Very quickly, I'll go through them. Upakrama Upasamhara, beginning and end. When you consider a text, don't just read one portion of it. Obviously, that's just for starters. Read the whole thing. And notice at the beginning and at the end, any well-written text will start from a proposition they want to prove. It may not be the first sentence, may not even be the second one. But if you have read through one or two paragraphs, you know what they are going to talk about. If it's well written. <laughs> we talk about um, speeches given by the teachers, the monks. So some are very systematic. They'll start with one, two, three, four, develop it. And some are what is, what is called the monkey jumping speech. They jump from this branch to that branch and they end up, you don't know where. They don't know where they started, where they went and ended up where. <laughs> so if it's like that, none of these systems will work. All systems will crash. But if it's a well-developed text where the author knows his or her own mind, what they're trying to say, it will work. It will definitely give you some meaning out of it. So the beginning and the end. What does it say in the beginning and what does it say in the end? And also literally may not mean this literal last sentence. It could mean the last paragraph or two. So look at that. What does it say? Notice, as you read through the, say, the Panchakosha Viveka, it says the body is the self. But very soon, as you go further, it says body is not the self, mind is not the self, prana is not the self, and so on. And in the end, it talks about something beyond the Anandamaya Kosha. Uh, so beginning and end. Abhyasa, Abhyasa, repetition. What is the one thing that is being repeated in a speech? Say a politician is giving a speech. What is the point of his speech? You'll see what is being repeated. Vote for me, basically. <laughs> that's what's being repeated. So that's the point of the speech. If you've understood that, then you've understood what the person is trying to say. Yeah. If you see an advertisement, any product, what's the point? Buy me. <laughs> So, uh, Abhyas is repetition. What is being repeated? So, you take the Chandogya, ninth, the sixth chapter of the Chandogya Upanishad, a classic Vedantic text. 
There's one sentence which is literally repeated exactly the same nine times there. What is that sentence? Tattvamasi, that thou art, that thou art, that thou art. Every few sections come back to the same conclusion. Till you can't escape the conclusion. They're trying to tell us, I am that, whatever that is. <laughs> so, repetition, that's another thing. Number three, Apurvata. What's the one thing you can find in this text which you cannot find elsewhere? The same stories you can find elsewhere, the same cosmologies you can find elsewhere. But what is the one crucial thing which the Upanishads are trying to tell you? That you are that reality. So that must be the purpose of the whole text. Then Upapatti. Upapatti means argumentation, reasoning. Every speech, text, philosophical tract, they'll all have a chain of reasoning which is developing. A lawyer's brief, a defending lawyer. It ultimately ends with not guilty. <laughs> I'm saying that my client is not guilty. So the defense lawyer, the, the prosecution will say this is guilty. But it, all the arguments develop to that. Because of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, because of these things, hence this. So if you look at the arguments presented there, you will get a sense of what they are trying to say. If you look at the arguments presented in Chandogya Upanishad, you will get a sense that they are trying to establish the unity of the individual and the cosmic. That there is some underlying oneness. So, Upapatti is reasoning. Athapatti, what is praised? What is eulogized? By that you will understand the meaning of the whole thing. By this all sorrows will be transcended. You will attain eternal bliss. Um, death is overcome by this in no other way. This is the praise of this knowledge. Then what kind of knowledge are they talking about? They are not talking about physics or English or Sanskrit. No. Sorrows are increased by that knowledge. <laughs> what knowledge? It's this spiritual knowledge by which we realize our nature and go beyond suffering. So by what is being praised here, you see what they, what they mean. And then the result, phalam. The result of this moksha, liberation. By that you understand what kind of knowledge are they talking about. Result of all this entire exercise. Look at what they are trying to say. What do you get out of it? If you see what you get out of it, or at least what is promised, then you know what they are talking about. So if you put these six together, Upakrama, Upasamhara, beginning and end, Abhyasa, uh, repetition, Apurvata, unique message, Upapatti, argumentation, Athapatti, praise or eulogy, and Phalam, result. And then apply it to a text like the Vedantic text. You can extract the purport of it, the meaning of it. And then you... So it's a, it's a wonderful mechanism. It is ancient Vedic hermeneutics. The English word I was using is hermeneutics. And this is what is meant in the classical sense by the word Shravana, hearing. What, are, what is a scholar studying Vedanta in the classical way in India, what are they doing? They are doing things like this. They have got the text and they are trying to extract the meaning of the text by these exercises. What will be the end result? The end result will be nothing more than what she just said. I read the whole thing and it seems to suggest that I am that absolute reality, that cosmic self, whatever you called it. Yeah, 
So all, so for example, she mentioned the stories. The stories here would come under Arthapatti. The story of uh, Yama and Nachiketa. Um, you know, usually it's a student going to a teacher. Um, so the little boy who went to the house of death. These stories are eulogistic, that, that they are praising the, the teaching in that way. So with all the stories and arguments and examples and whatever um, promises, all of them are pointing towards one teaching. If you apply that to this Upanishad, what we are, the, our present problem, our present problem is, is creation real or not? We'll see. We'll see that the Upanishad does not mean it this way. It says that the universe was created, five elements, and at the end, when you come to it, it will say, there is neither sky, nor earth, nor fire, nor water, uh, nor air. Having said that, it was all created. So what would we expect? A world of five elements. None of it is there. Neither body, nor mind, nor intellect. It is all Brahman. In that case, what was all this you talked about creation? It must be an apparent creation. Why did they at all talk about it, if they did not mean it? They used it as a teaching mechanism. How does it work as a teaching mechanism? Because that's what we see. Unless you begin with what I see, I will not understand what you are talking about. So you must begin with the body, you must begin with the world, and then show me what you want to show me. I feel the Upanishads compared to Gaudapada, uh, uh, the Manukya, they all nicely gift wrap what they want to say in stories. Hmm. Gaudapada is brutal, straightforward, and to the point. Hmm. He doesn't mince words, he doesn't beat around the bush, he's, uh, bush. he just goes straightforward. Yeah, Gaudapada is analytic. Yeah. He, he opens up the gift wrapping, you might say. He opens the box and shows you the inner workings of the box. What's going on there? We have got beautiful stories and conclusions and poetry in the Upanishads. Dramatic. But if you want to read the reasoning behind it, if you want to get the same vision Gaurapada has or the Upanishadic Rishis have, then you have to hold Gaurapada's hand and step by step he shows you. So right now what is he showing us? He is showing us that your question was, why do the Upanishads talk about the creation if there is no creation at all? No. So he says there is no real creation. Upanishads are talking about an apparent creation. How do you know that? Through this process. Where does it say so? Two words are used in this verse. Nishchitam yukti yuktam cha. The purport is ascertained. Nishchitam means ascertainment. Ascertaining. Clarity. Nishchay means clarity. Determination, clarity, ascertainment. That ascertainment of the whole text, the meaning of the text, the purport of the text is done by this. This is the stage of Shravana, hearing, study. The next one, next word is Yukti Yuktam, reason, reasonable. What we have ascertained, the whole text is telling me I am Brahman. Or in this case the texts are telling me the universe is an appearance, it's not a real creation. Is it according to logic and reason? It must be according to logic and reason also. So that is the stage of Mananam. Second stage in Vedanta. So in these two little words, Nishchitam Yukti Yuktam Cha, Shravana and Manana are hidden here. Meditation he will come to later. So Nishchitam means by the process, Shadvidalinga, by the sixfold process of getting the meaning of a text, we ascertain, Nishchitam means ascertain, that the Upanishads are not trying to say that there is a real creation. They are trying to say there is an apparent creation. There is definitely you are experiencing a creation, but it is apparent. The reality is Brahman.
show me, show me. He says, look, I will now show you texts. It will, it will follow this method. I will now show you texts from the Upanishads themselves, which flat out contradict what they said a few, few paragraphs earlier. The five elements were created, the world is created, uh, like a spider um, uh, creating its web and withdrawing its web and so on. So all these texts, what they are saying are flat out contradicted a few passages later on by such, such texts. If the dualists say Brahman actually created a universe, then they cannot give any meaning to these texts, which are coming now. The non-dualist can ex explain the whole thing. The texts about creation of the universe, so-called creation, and these ones also, which deny the creation. If you talk about creation and deny it, what your meaning was that creation was an apparent creation, not a real creation. 24. Nehananeti cham nayad. Nehananeti cham nayad. Indro maya bhirityapi. Indro maya bhirityapi. Ajayamano bahudha. Ajayamano bahudha. Mayaya jayate tu saha. Mayaya jayate tu saha. Such texts as Nehananastikinchana, uh, uh, we'll talk about it. Such texts as Indra Pururupa Iyate, Indra Maya Bhi Pururupa Iyate, I'll explain it. And Ajayamano Bahuda Vijayate, Ajayamano Bahuda Vijayate. These are texts, he's given three texts. Two from Upanishads and one from another Vedic hymn called Purusha Shukta. Mayaya Jayate. So the, all the creations are by Maya, which means apparent creation. All this universe you see is a projection or an appearance. Like our dream universe. Like our dream universe. You see everything. There is a sky and the lake and the forest and the people and the animals and the birds. And you have a body. You have a mind too. And yet all of that is imagined in the sleeper's mind. You are asleep and dreaming up a world. None of that was actually produced. Now that's the example. What does it apply to? You are that, that infinite existence consciousness bliss in which the non-dual reality, in which this dualistic universe appears. Subject, object. You seeing a universe. Whereas you the seer and what you see are actually one underlying reality. So this is what he's saying. Now he says, look at, consider these texts. If creation was real, then how will you explain these texts? In the same Upanishad, in the Upanishad itself you will find. Katha Upanishad, the story of um, Yama and Nachiketa, the little boy who went to the house of death. There, this, this text is there. Nehananastikinchana, which means there is no plurality here whatsoever. There is no plurality here whatsoever. Ne, na iha. Iha means here, right now. Here. This universe which you are seeing as stars and planets and oceans and people and living beings. Here, where there seem to be millions of entities. Here itself, the Upanishad claims, there is no plurality whatsoever. You are experiencing plurality. Clearly you are experiencing plurality. 
And the Upanishad says there is no plurality. What does it mean? Then the experience must be just that, an experience. The underlying thing must be one, oneness. There must be an underlying oneness here. That's what the Upanishad is pointing towards. Then the Upanishad is not denying that you are experiencing a plurality. But it will say that this plurality must be like your dream plurality. All the things that you see in the dream are nothing but your mind. Similarly, all the things that you experience here. By see, I mean not just see. Hear, smell, taste, touch, think, conceive of, remember, imagine, love, hate. All of that is an appearance in one existence consciousness bliss which you are. Yes. I read, I read the Upanishads, then I go back to uh, the Mandukya, then I come to class here, wonderful, I go home in seventh heaven, and then I'm off for a week, I manage to apply it, I go to the gym, I try to see the oneness of everything, I dwell on it, I go to Whole Foods, I see, mm. okay, these are all just appearances, different races, different genders, wonderful, then I wake up the next morning, I have a terrible backache because I injured myself at the gym and everything goes out the window. Mm-hmm. So... It goes, I feel I march up, you know, with you to the, to, towards the summit and then uh, all goes well and I'm all smiling and I feel like I'm back at base camp within no time. All right. And I feel like I have to start again. You, I've listened to you carefully. Follow this, okay. what I'm saying. That one which experienced oneness and uh, you know feeling elevated and being convinced about this that one mm-hmm. somebody experienced it you did well i'm trying to I'm all right but but you 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 felt it was good yeah. and that one which experiences the back pain and the suffering and the apparent failure of trying to put these teachings into practice somebody experienced that also Aren't the two the same one? Yeah, but you, you know, you're, you're telling us we're not our physical bodies and you're try, I'm trying to get that distance between no, 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 consciousness it, 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 and the physical body and the next thing, you know. Ah. Don't try to be that consciousness as a physical body. Notice... No, I'm trying to get the distance, but then you feel the back pain uh-huh. and then you suddenly say... I am my physical body because I'm in pain. So then I lose the disease. All right, or, or let's stay there. Okay. Stay at the point of failure. Okay. I am my physical body because I feel the pain. You know what Advaita would say? Because you feel the pain, you are not your physical body. No, but, but just instead of dismissing it, just dis- how can it be? Is Advaita um, anesthetic? I was attending a talk at Stony Brook by Professor Arindam Chakravarti, a brilliant philosopher, who, by the way, is going to speak here next month, uh, last week of April. Um, so he was saying, whether Indian philosophy is analytic or not, it's certainly analgesic. <laughs> well, you see, there's so much pain. So what would Advaita say to that, to so much pain? Advaita would, would say that the one which experiences that pain, one which notices the coming and going of that pain, is that, is that permanently linked to the pain? No. That same one was there when there was no pain. The same one is there now which, which sees no pain there. 
So in that one, the absence, it knows the absence of pain and the presence of pain also. No matter how dramatic and how terrible, that is the presence of pain. The one which is aware of both the absence of pain and the presence of pain. Here's a question. Yes, you are getting it. Yes. One which is aware of both the absence of pain and the presence of pain. Is it in pain? No. No. Mm. Yes. So you still have to do take care of the back pain. <laughs> that is by all kinds of you know the medicine, rest, whatever is necessary. You did not, yes. You are. You are. That is a great thing to learn. Just, just hold on to what you just said. I did not slip back to base camp. It's a trick of the mind. It felt like that. Yes. It felt like that. That feeling like that is the mind. And you're just thinking, oh, that little rascal, the mind. Yes, it's the mind. It felt like that, that experience is created by the mind. And the one which experiences that experience, that one is not, not subject to it. It is not at the peak of the, it is the peak. And you are that peak. You cannot slip away from it. Yeah. This, this happens. This happens. After one begins to get an understanding of it, one keeps thinking, I'm swinging back and forth between that. Don't worry. Just hold on to this thing that even at the worst moments, in the moments of pain and apparently you've lost your temper or you're feeling depressed, you're, you're feeling um, sad, all the negativities you can think of, which you would not associate with the spiritual state. Yeah. When you are feeling that, know that what is the one thing common to this and the good state? You will realize the real thing. Try this exercise. Now, imagine yourself experiencing the, the elevation and the peace and the, uh, and the delight of the Advaitic thinking, non-dual thinking, and the one experiencing the pain, lying in the bed and vivid, continuous, sharp pain you're experiencing. Now tell yourself that I am the one which experienced the absence of the pain. I am the one experiencing the presence of the pain. I, that one, am eternally free of the pain. In me the pain comes and disappears. I am the witness of the presence and absence of the pain. Remember, this is not non-duality. I'll take you there. Wait. If you have understood so far, this much you hold on to. I am the witness of what? Of the presence and absence of the pain. So there are two things now. Follow carefully, very carefully. The witness and what it witnesses. The presence and absence of the pain. Now do this. Look at me. Take the witness and what it witnesses, presence of the pain, absence of the pain, and put it aside, put both aside.
even that witness is not real it's also a function of the mind when you hear these teachings the mind sets up a witness like that it's good let it set up be set in that then push them aside witness and the witnessed what remains after that you will see you cannot express in words and that i can do every time you can this happens so i feel like oh, i yeah. sit down you can and not only that after some time you won't need to do it it will be automatic all right No. Even when you refine the witness consciousness to the best you can through all the Advaitic teachings, when you get a clarity about the witness consciousness, know still it is the mind only. After doing that, when you're getting a clarity about the witness consciousness, here is the movie of the world. I am the watcher of the movie of the world. Still the mind. Having done that, now push both aside. I can only, I can only say that. I cannot do any more than that. This is just take both of them and push them aside. What remains? Perhaps, uh, perhaps the... Don't say. <laughs> <laughs> If you say something else, we'll come back again. In. Notice. Try to notice. Just feel it. Try to notice. Try to feel that you are watching the movie of the world. Uh, you are in the audience. You are watching the movie of the world. World means your life. Stay in that. That's a good thought. But it's still a thought. Then, the next moment, with one sweep, the movie watcher and the movie, both of them push it aside. You will get an enormous sense of space and freedom. And you will know that's always there. That's always there. No, you won't. You will see. What remains will be non-objective. What will disappear is, is, are the objects. Hmm. Yes. That also, not that time you have to be pure conscious mind to apply, but hmm. to respond to that is also part of living world. Right, and that's still Maya. Huh. Maya, uh. of course. Somebody could say that, yes, I get this idea. Suppose I treat the, all the experience of life as a movie and I am watching it, I'm the witness. Remember, this is not Advaita, it's Sankhya actually. I'm watching it. Um, But as she said, it could be a bad movie. I could be not be fond of the movie of my life at all. I wish it was that other person's movie sit, staying in the penthouse in the, near, you know, in, um, in Hollywood, Beverly Hills or something. Maybe that movie would be better. It's a movie, I know, but still I prefer that movie to this show. <laughs> that shows you're still very much part of the movie. Uh, that's why this exercise is necessary. The witness and the witnessed, the movie watcher and the movie. To go to that point also, it's a great relief. We are nowhere, nowhere at the point. We don't even know it's a movie. We think this is real and I'm part of it. To make this a movie itself is what Advaita is doing, what Gaudapada is doing. Then you become the movie watcher. That itself is a big relief. But there's something beyond that. After coming there, push the whole thing aside. I can't put it in any more words than that. But you can sort of psychologically understand what I'm trying to say. Then don't look for what is left. You can't. You can't do anything then. When the witness is gone, the witness is the looker. You will actually get the feeling that then everything will disappear. Logically, it will seem like everything will disappear. It is an emptiness. That's why the Buddhists say it's an emptiness. Shunya or Mahashunya, the great void. But the great void is also the plenitude. Is Purnam. 
Okay. Exactly. So I'm using that uh, word witness hmm. correct in this. Witness actually should not participate in the experience. Witness means it's not attached with. It's not attached, your, right. So you are sending away witness, whether we are using the word witness correctly. Correct. In fact, what happens is, what happens is, as she said, even when you're doing the witnessing thing, see, if the, the real thing is, if the mind is purified, then the real witness is understood very quickly. If the mind is not totally purified, there will be what is called raga dvesha, likes and dislikes. Even when you tease it apart, the witness and the witness, the movie and the moviegoer, the moviegoer still has certain criticisms and <laughs> comments on the movie. So that is not the real witness. Yeah, the that witness is still. Actually should not participate it's in still the experience. It is still the witness tinged with the mind. It's an impure witness. Mm -hmm. yeah. yes. That's why I said push it aside. One last effort is necessary. If you go to the real witness, you will know there's nothing more that it lacks. It, is, it does not lack anything, it does not want anything. So, doesn't lack, doesn't want, is it very bored? It's not bored. <laughs> in fact, the times in our lives when we feel the most alive, those few precious moments which we all have in our lives, that's where you somehow got a glimpse of the real witness in the midst of all of this. Imagine being there all the time. You have no complaints there. No problems there. No lack there. So there is an enormous freedom and space and light and peace there, all the time. And it's always available. And from that point, from there, you can continue to act in this world. You can still act in this world. There's, there's abs you, your life will go on, but it will be a life of the universal in the particular. Okay, let me, just, um, let me just hold on to questions. Let me just complete these texts. He has given us three texts. What is he trying to show? If you think creation is real, make sense of these texts. You cannot. Neha nana kinchana. The Katopanishad itself says, there is no multiplicity. Nana means multiplicity, plurality. There is no multiplicity here in this enormously plural universe. There is no multiplicity whatsoever. Even while you are experiencing it. Can you say that? You can say that in a dream. You can say there is no multiplicity here whatsoever. Because it's a dream. It's all one mind. It's only one thing. Right now you can see. What you are seeing here. I was giving the example yesterday I think. What you are seeing here. Men and women. Chairs and um, uh, photographs. And the ceiling and the ground. And the carpets. Pictures. All of it. All these different entities. By the time they reach your eyes. They are only light. A chair doesn't reach your eye, a flower doesn't reach your eye, you'd be blind in no time at all. Only one thing reaches your eyes. By the time it reaches the level of sensation, level of objects, plurality. By the time it reaches your eyes, level of sensation, only one thing, light. The moment it goes into the eyes, it make, becomes, become, becomes images. From there, it's not even light or images, it's just little bursts of electricity. In the optic nerves going racing to the brain. By the time, by a process which is completely mysterious now, which they are only beginning to study now, how do those tiny electrical activity in the brain get reconstituted into mental experiences in the mind, what we are having now? Perceptions, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Never for a moment think that you are seeing the world. Oh, no, no, no. 
You are seeing representations of the world in your brain. No scientist will ever doubt that. That's what's happening. We never have any access to the external world. And not only perceptions, but apperceptions, emotions, memories, desires, all of them, they are just mental representations, appearing and disappearing, appearing and disappearing. So by that time, the entire universe of diversity is just mind, thoughts in the mind. And those thoughts in the mind, they have no presence except in consciousness. If you are that light, you the light are not there, that universe of perception, a perception, nothing will be there. It will just disappear into the void. Ultimately, all the variety is reduced back to that one light which shines within you. You might say, no, 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 what you mean is it's all out there, but I, in here it is like that. No, no, out there, in here are all in here. Even the out there, what is this out there? You could say the same thing in a dream, here and there. You'd wake up and see the whole thing here and there was in my mind. Here, space, time, object. It's not that they are out there and being recreated in the brain. That's what the materialist would have you believe. Advaita says, look closely to your experience. Your experience is fundamental. Time and space, here and there, then and now and then, they are all within your experience. It's not that they exist outside and you are seeing them now. So that one consciousness is the, the fundamental clay out of which the pottery of the universe is built. It's the fundamental water out of which the ocean of the universe is um, manifested. So that oneness is there right now. Neha nana kinchana. And also, notice in grammar, asti is present tense. There is no plurality here now. If you say, it was all one before the universe was created, alright, that seems to be a typical religious belief in many religions. But to say, have the chutzpah, to say, it is all one now, asti, present, now. That means the diversity, plurality we are seeing is only apparent. There is a oneness underneath this. It's a great, great thing, this oneness. This is the salvation of humanity. This is moksha, this is heaven. This underlying oneness. Here you are immortal. And you will be reunited with your loved ones in heaven. That promise, it's only a pale imitation of the reality. Which is you are forever united with your loved ones here and now. But also your, your hated ones. <laughs> That's why I have no, no enmity with anybody. Because they are ultimately they are all your loved ones. You are eternally united. You're, united means what? Two things can be united. You're not even two. You are one. It's perfectly alright at that level here. At the level of the movie, it could be a comedy or a tragedy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Maharaj, what I personally suffer from, that a pastime was so much better. Right now, it's not so good. Pastime, we had a great culture. Now, it's fallen down. Mm. That's the movie. So try to make a better movie, You're a, it, it's a nice project, but remember it's a movie. Yeah. The screen underneath the movie, the comedy and the tragedy is the same thing. Brahman is exactly the same as in the past and the present. Even past, present and future are also in Brahman. Brahman is not in past, present and future. So we are talking about two dif different levels. So if you are worried about the culture now and the glory of the past, if you, if you, have, if you are a romantic about the past, good, 
try to make a better world now or at least make a better world for yourself but that's just changing the movie the underlying reality is perfect as it is so the next one the next text is from brihadaranyaka upanishad indro maya bhi pururupai the whole thing is not given here indro maya bhi pururupai yate that's from brihadaranyaka upanishad 2519 no 2519 yes indra by the power of maya assumed multiple forms so here indra does not mean the chief of the gods indra it means brahman so brahman assumed multiple forms what are the multiple fo- forms all this men and women the birds and the beasts stars and planets all of this that one reality appeared as this how maya bhi by the power of maya here the maya actually means a kind of magic a sleight of hand so the one appeared as many did it become many no if it became many the word maya bhi would not be used so there is one reality now which is indra in according to the words uh, the terminology there but it appears as this world of heavens and earths and hells of um, gods and demons of birds and beasts of life and suffering and birth and death this is at this level and underneath that there is one one divinity which you are you say there is one divinity you might say good for that divinity but what is it to me but you are that divinity so you are safe there then the next text is even more radical it's from the purusha sukta ajayamano bahuda jayate bahuda vijayate ajayamano bahuda vijayate it's purusha sukta is it's not an upanishad it's from the vedas it's a highly regarded vedic hymn in fact in i remember this is particularly evocative for us um in belurmat our main monastery if any any monk passes away there so we are allowed by the municipality to cremate the body there ourselves um so there are a lot of rituals associated with the one is in front of the divine mother's temple holy mother's temple there is the ghat there ganga which she looks out on that so at night usually the public is not allowed in there um unless they are very close devotees of that swami or whoever but only the the uh, monks and the novices brahmacharis are there so we take the body down the steps to the river and the it is given a ritualistic bath and new um ochre clothes are put and the begging like the begging bowl this there's a sack which which a monk goes around which is like a little bag to beg for food a new one is put so it's like the monk setting off on his last journey and then an aarti is done of that uh, the body of that swami and at that time the novices chant the purushas suktam this one and what does it say ajayamano bahuda vijayate here brahman is called purusha it begins with sahasra shirsha purusha sahasraksha sahasrapat um the, that being has a thousand heads that means myriad heads myriad hands and feet that means all of us together we are that purusha purusha literally means a vast being brahman is called purusha here and it says bahuda vijayate it is born in multifarious forms it is born in multifarious forms it it appears in multifarious forms of what of this universe so the dualist will say aha so it is born in multifarious forms you are saying but before that it says ajayamano being unborn being not born being not created being not 
not being born, it is born in many forms. What does it mean? It appears in many forms, remaining exactly the same. God alone appears as this universe. God alone appears as this universe. A little aside here, hold on. A little aside here that um, in Christian theology, there's something that's often, you know, like it is criticized that pantheism, many Hindus are supposed to be pantheistic or Spinoza is supposed to be pantheistic. It's not pantheistic. Pantheism is when that ultimate reality becomes this universe. But here the ultimate reality remains as the, uh, as the ultimate reality. The glory of God is untouched. Brahman is exactly the same. And you are that ultimate reality. And it appears in so many forms. Um, so therefore we conclude Mayaya Jayate Tusa. That ultimate reality appears as this universe through Maya. Not actually undergoing changes or creating. Not actually becoming a cause or a creator. Creating a, a real separate universe. The universe is an appearance, but yes. why is it this appearance? Why is it have these particular laws? Of, why, why is there gravity? Why can't we fly? Why? Also, the other thing is, why are these physical laws? Why are they physical constants? Why yeah. is the speed of light not different tomorrow? Right, right. So um, there are at two levels. There's an answer. One is I'll give you the Vedantic answer. Do you understand the question? Why is it like this? Why is it not like something else? Um, the Vedantic answer I'll give you. At the core, the Vedantic answer and the scientific answer, which we'll discuss later, is uh, at the core, they are the same answer. The answer is causality. There is a certain cause-effect relationship. The Vedantic answer is this. This whole universe, can you give me why at all? You say it's a projection of Brahman. All right, let it be a projection of Brahman. But why at all projected? Why at all this game of life? So one answer, the standard answer is, all of us individual beings, we have a load of past karma. You say, when did it begin? A separate question, did not begin, beginningless. <laughs> but here we are, because it's a cyclic idea in Hinduism. The universe is created, it exists and it then is withdrawn back again uh, into, call it a singularity, uh, Hinduism will call it. Um, Saguna Brahman in Maya. But isn't karma incompatible with uh, the idea of a non-doer? Of course, but we are, we are not talking at that level now. Mm. When you are talking, look, look at your question. Your question is, why is it like this? Mm. With particular cosmological constants. That's what you are asking. That means you have already at least provisionally accepted this universe. If you are asking, is it the non incompatible with non-duality? My answer will be perfect. You ask, why is it like this? I'll ask, why is what like this? You'll say, this universe. I'll say, what universe? It's Brahman. you say, what? The cosmological concept. I'll say, what cosmological constants? It's like asking the cosmological constants of my dream. There's your dream. They never did exist. So that's, at that level, I'll answer like that. But suppose you're asking at this level. So there are, there are multiple levels. And the multiple levels are because you are asking questions at multiple levels. You're asking questions, why does this universe have those cosmological constants? What does Vedanta have to say about it? Ultimately, you're right. Vedanta will say it's Maya, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. But if you want to take this seriously, why is it like this and not like something else? Then the answer will be karma, causality. We have a load of past karma and according to that, we must experience the results of that karma. So Brahman, that means Saguna Brahman here, Brahman with Maya, 
projects a universe, creates worlds of experience for us to undergo these experiences and evolve spiritually thereby, life after life, ultimately we realize our identity with Brahman. So this is the story, but the operative word is story. Isn't it all non-dual? It's all non-dual. If you go to the absolute, then this is just a story. So then your question would be, why these cosmo cosmological constants? They would be perfect for creating a world for human beings to experience. If those cosmological constants were not there, physicists will tell you. This is not, I'm not Vedanta anymore. Uh, physicists will tell you, uh, life would not be possible. Planets would not be possible. If gravitation were not such and such, planets would not remain in orbit around the sun. They would go spinning off. But life as we know it will not be possible. Hmm. Life perhaps that is, is supported by carbon dioxide. It might be possible. I don't sure. And Vedanta will actually say, that's a nice scientific question. Investigate it. What Vedanta is saying, the whole thing is Maya, underneath is one reality. From that point of view, these questions make no sense at all. No more than if you are seriously arguing, why did Harry Potter do this? He could have done that. Vedanta is saying, it's a story. Get over it. The thing to do with a story is to enjoy it. Right Now, could the story have been else, uh, something else? Yes, ask J.K. Rowling why they did it that way. But Vedanta is not interested. Vedanta just wants to say the reality is that it's paper and print and it has a story written by an author. At the level of the story, your questions are valid. But Vedanta is not working at the level of the story. Yeah. Yes. Alright, I'll come to that. But um, just uh, as a so something to add to that, Jim Holt's book, Why Does the World Exist? He deals with all these questions. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, he has it's a very sweeping uh, exploration of different theories. Wait one second, just on a rejoinder of that one, right? Hmm. I think three or four weeks ago the same question came um, up also and I think um, we spent like a half an hour discussing the same question. I'm, I'm, remind, I'm sort of remembering. No, but he brings up the cosmological constants here. Yeah, so. I know, but your answer that time was also that, I, I, because this answer was so stark, that's why it stuck in my head, which was, you say sometimes I wonder if we are asking the right questions in this class or not. Mm. So it was the same question, which was, um, you know, the question we're trying to answer here is what is Brahma, not necessarily what happens after the world is created. Uh, so what is Brahman and its relationship to the world? So what Brahman is not the creator of the world and therefore there is no real world which has been created. Hence these questions are not relevant. But even if the questions are not relevant, if I were you, I would ask why is the question not relevant? That would, the answer to that question would be enlightening. It seems to me that the question is relevant. In the, in the Mandukya context, if you say why is the question not relevant, what would Gaudapada say? Said, Have you not listened to what I said? The world is an apparent creation. So the features of this world, like the cosmological constants, and gravity, speed of light, and the weak force, and certain things are there, those are part of the fiction. They really are not germane to the, the, the central argument that the whole thing is an appearance. When you say, the, why this way and not that way, you are an implicit feeling that it is in some way real, that it matters. No, it, it doesn't matter from that point of view. Okay, I'll come to you first. 
Yeah, the question of feeling. Right, when the question of feeling comes, notice that Brahman, when you're talking about Advaita, it's also oneness. The answer to your question is at two levels. One is the philosophical answer, one is the practical answer. The practical answer is when you look at the lives of non-dualist saints, whether it's Ramana Maharshi or Ramakrishna, or, they feel a tremendous sense of oneness with everybody. Some of them, they spend their whole lives in dynamic service of the world, in trying to do good to the world. Why? Just a, just a story. It's not a story apart from me. It's I myself. The story is just an example. But I myself am all of this. This is the reality. What is the story? Here is a universe apart from me. I am a tiny part of this universe. Born, I shall perish within a few instants. And this mass of matter will go on, whirling on, without any um, uh, purpose or meaning. So, that is the story. This story is false. This is what Advaita wants to say. What is the reality then? The whole thing which you are seeing as separate from yourself is you. So Vivekananda would say that about when he saw India, that feel, feel first. If you want to be a Buddha, you feel like a Buddha. If you want to be a Christ, feel like a Christ. That all these millions, hungry and uneducated and superstitious and suffering, they are your own flesh and blood, they are your own brothers and sisters. Do you feel that oneness? That comes from Advaita. In fact, one of my friends, who's a, whom I, I really admire very much, is, I think he's a, I don't know if he's an enlightened person, but really a wonderful Swami, young Swami. He said that most people think Advaita, non-dualism, comes from here. He said, that's not true. It comes from here. I never heard anybody say it. In fact, Arindam Chakravarti, the philosopher, he will speak about this next month. He will speak about dreams and yoga vashishta, love and Vivekananda's Vedanta. So, yes. And when you look at the lives of the saints, they, even the ones who base their approach on non-dualism, they feel a tremendous oneness with others. And just for the sake of argument, if you take the materialist, reductionist point of view, there is no space for emotion there. There is no space for meaning there. The scientific worldview, if you take what is now the worldview, I'm not saying science, scientific worldview. What is meaning? Nothing. Meaning has no existence there. It's a mass of uncaring matter. As one um, person put it, if I take, uh, he was a pastor, is arguing with a scientist. says, if I take your worldview seriously, they had a bottle of coke sitting on the table. If I take your worldview seriously, then what is going on here, and what is going on that fizzing coke in the bottle, they're more or less the same thing. Just more complex fizzing going on here. <laughs> Love, meaning, life, um, help, good, bad. What are they in science? Less than nothing. What we call human values, from an absolutely scientific reductionist point of view, what are they? Matter is real, energy is real, time and space are real. That matter somehow becomes living matter. The living matter over millions of years somehow evolves into human beings. And in the human beings with sophisticated brains and nervous systems, they generate somehow, or many somehows in between, somehow they generate conscious experiences. In those higher order conscious experiences, there are certain things like love and hate, 
um, uh, you know, unselfishness, unselfishness. And they also can be explained by Darwinian evolution to some extent. None of them survive without the brain surviving. And the brain does not survive without the mass of living tissue surviving. And the living tissue is nothing without the matter constituting it. And that ultimately that whirling mass of matter is the only reality that is. Isn't this literally the scientific worldview today? Can anybody challenge that this is not what they are saying? And if you look at it, what an enormously depressing way of looking at the universe. <laughs> completely devoid of value, completely devoid of meaning. Everything is accidental, by chance. So, yeah, so this, these are the two. Yes. Oh, oh, hold on to one more thing. I was reading a philosopher, uh, the French philosopher Luc Ferry. He says, uh, so here we are in the history of grand history of Western thought. He, he summarizes four great phases in Western thought. The Greek idea of an orderly cosmos. If you contemplate that, then the human values are drawn from the cosmos. Then the Christian idea of faith in a creator God and the salvation through Jesus Christ. Then this modern scientific idea of uh, what, we, what I just talked about, modern science, right? what I just talked about. And then the postmodern idea of criticism of all of these. And he says, if you ask me to choose which is most attractive to you, which would you rather have, which is true? And he says, I would choose Christianity. I would choose Christianity, that means religion. I would choose Christianity as the most attractive to me. Except, he writes, except that I don't believe it. I can't believe it. I believe science, yet it offers no hope to me. Christianity offers all the hope, most tempting, yet it is completely unbelievable. <laughs> then what? What remains? It's the postmodern condition of humanity. And this is where I feel, so this is where he stops, but this is where I feel Vedanta has something to offer. It offers you the logic and rigor of science. And the hope that religions have. It gives a basis for religion. It gives a fundamental. Now you can believe in whether Hinduism, Christianity, Buddhism, whatever. It gives a rational foundation. Yeah. It's because of, the, because of this oneness that we're all in the same universe, basically. Uh -huh. Is that what you say? Um, you are that oneness. The, I mean, we, not that we are all in. Yes. It, in one sense, we are all in the same universe, but, but literally speaking, the universe is in you. That's what it's saying. You are, the universe is nothing but you. You are this universe, what you are experiencing. Yeah. I, never, I, I can't seem to grasp the whole idea of karma. I just can't seem to, to put it together. I think this, this oneness of uh, Advaita Vedanta is far more difficult. Karma is, uh, the, yeah. the, the karma is just causality. It's causality, huh. but that's duality. Yeah, that's not duality. That's, as I said, karma is ultimately not real. It's at the level of the story. Yeah. yeah. See, when did I bring in karma? Notice that Gaurapada never brings in karma anywhere. He's not interested. Yeah. When did I bring in karma? When he brought in the universe. Well, that's why, yeah. <laughs> when you bring in the universe, I'll bring in causality. But the causality is because we all come, because we are one. No, if there's one, there's no causality. There's no causality. We, 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 that's what Gaudapada is arguing in the third chapter. Brahman is beyond causality. Non-duality means there is no causality. 
cause and effect, the very words causality means cause and effect. That means duality. So non-causality and non-duality are the same thing. If there is non-causality, then there cannot be karma. Ultimately. See, the, the simplest way of making sense of all of this is the, the Advaita doctrine of two levels of truth. The Paramarthika, the Absolute, which is the non-dual Brahman. And the Vyavaharika, the transactional, which what we are inhabiting now. Here it makes sense to talk about science and causality and religion and philosophy. See, so even this two levels of truth doesn't make sense. It makes sense because you, are, you deal with it all the time. When I said, when you're reading Harry Potter or any book of fiction, you're de- dealing with two levels of truth. There's a fictional world of what's going on and there's the world where you're sitting with a bunch of paper and print on it. There are two levels of truth there. If you ask a question about why Harry Potter said, said such and such thing, what is it a question about? It's not a question about the binding of the book or the paper. It's a question about the story which is going on there. That's at the level of the story. Causality, karma is the level of the story, of the fiction. But Advaita is not about the fiction. Advaita is of, about snapping out of the fiction. You see, if you ask questions about karma, about cosmological constants, why this or why that, those are questions of science. Those are questions of morality, ethics, of conventional religion. You'll find there's an impatience with them in, uh, with, uh, in Gaurapada. He says, snap out of it as soon as possible. Why dwell in the nightmare? Yeah. I, I see. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of traditional religions have this notion of like God being good, God hmm. being benevolent. I'm just trying to understand that from the concept of uh, Advaita, be it at the higher level of truth or the lower level. Uh, and especially at the lower level, if we think of this appearance of, as you said, the worldly mass of matter and, and gas or energy, uh, I'm struggling with when we think about Brahman being uh, a witness, not participating in that in in some ways. What is guiding that you know worldly mass of energy and matter forward? Because there are things that are happening. Uh, if, even if you talk about the story, there is well, karma. Is there someone keeping an account of even at the story level, whose karma is what? Or how, how is that happening if, if Brahman is not participating, is the witness yeah. um, guiding this forward? When you're thinking about not participating, you're thinking of two things. There is something happening and you're sitting apart from it. Yeah. Yeah. So, first of all, that something happening and sitting apart from it, that is not Advaita. Obviously, that's not, 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 that's not non-dualistic, but it's dualism. You are something and that is something. There are two already. But notice, if that something happening is a dream, then it is non-dual because the things in the dream are not apart from the dreamer. It is the dreamer himself or herself who is generating the dream in his own mind. That's not a separate reality. It's not a theater which is being staged in Broadway apart from you. A Broadway theater, if you're sitting there and watching the movie, uh, watching the theater, then it's still dualism. There are two things going on and you are not participating in that. You are the watcher. Even there, there's a lot of peace. If you can become the watcher in your own life. But that's not what Advaita is saying. Advaita is saying, if you truly appreciate the truth, then the whole question will disappear. That this is Brahman. And there's no separately. You see, the moment you say something is happening, you've already given a reality to this uh, world appearance. 
If you give reality to the world appearance, then look to science and conventional religion for answers to your question. What would conventional religion say? Again, Vedanta, you will see. Notice, this question is not at all relevant to what we are studying because um, he is not bothered by this. But if you ask this question, it seems to be vital. How can he not be bothered by this? This is the real question. Is it real? If it's not real, why would it be a real question? If you suddenly discovered it was all my dream, would you ask these questions? Why did that person say? Will that person be punished? That person, the good one and the bad one are you in the dream. There is no other person. And the, and the evil deed was not committed. There is no evil person there. There is no question of punishment there. There is no question of ultimate morality in a dream. But what is there is the underlying oneness, Brahman. Yeah. If you still persist in asking for reasons, what I exactly told him. Law, bring in law of karma, bring in God, bring in morality. If that doesn't satisfy you, bring in science. Advaita says we are completely neutral about this from, from Brahman point of view, from the absolute reality point of view. It's not value neutral, however. Is Brahman equal to good and bad? No, no, no. Evil, misery and um, you know, untruthfulness and murdering people. And is that as good as being a moral person, good person? No, not at all. From an Advaitic point of view, all of that, though all of that is at the transactional level of reality, one helps you to get out of that transactional level of reality to the absolute. The other one traps you further and further in that transactional level. The one helps you to snap out of the matrix, the other one <laughs> traps you in the matrix to give a modern uh, answer to it. Yes. So morality has an instrumental value. To be religious, ethical is very good from an Advaitic perspective because it's, a, it's an essential preparation for enlightenment. To be immoral, to be um, uncontrolled, to be impulsive is just digging a deeper hole for yourself. More suffering, more suffering. Yeah. Yes. Just wanted to say something with the gentleman in the striped shirt there. Uh, Non-dualism is actually very, creates a lot of compassion. Yes. Because he said no feelings, but if you see everyone is one, if you look at the homeless person or the suffering person, you identify. Right, right. So it depends on what, what you are stressing. One side is the falsity of the world. If you dwell too much on that, you will see, you will feel where is this question will come. Where is the question of compassion if it's an appearance? But that's just for your sake. Don't say that, oh, you are suffering. It's false. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to ethics and morality, the foundation of ethics and morality is oneness. Swami Vivekananda, not only is that that uh, ethics and morality in Advaita, not only that, Swami Vivekananda, has, uh, he says, the only foundation for ethic, ethics, I should give a talk on this once, he has a, there's a wonderful paper, Swami Vivekananda's ontological ethics, a 20 page essay by Bhajanandaji, Swami Bhajanananda, which, where he shows that uh, the, Swami Vivekananda's claim, that the only foundation for ethics, for values, is Advaita. That you and your neighbor are one reality. That is the only reason why. He says, give me a reason why I should not cut my neighbor's throat if it will benefit me. The only reason is by harming anybody else, I harm myself. That feeling of oneness immediately is expressed as love for everybody. Love and Advaita come from that. And in that, that article, he explores all the theories of ethics. It's called, um, no, it's not a book. 
It's Swami Vivekananda's Ontological Ethics. If you want, I can forward it to you. I, I have a copy of that. I gave a presentation on this. There was a, um, a, an orientation course for philosophers in the Calcutta, of universe, uh, in, uh, Calcutta University many, a couple of decades ago. And I used this article for a presentation on Vivekananda's Theory of Ethics. And my talk was the last in the whole day. And these professors, they were eager to go home. You know, so. <laughs> and you, will, you, won't, you won't believe it. They were so entranced. For 90 minutes I talked about this. They kept saying, who said this? Who wrote this? I said, it's not me. I'm just, it's borrowed goods. I'm, there's a Swami in the Belurmat who's written this. I'm presenting it to you. And I had just one handout. And they kept the photocopier guy working beyond office hours, which is a great achievement in India, if you can imagine. <laughs> And there was a queue of these philosophy teachers outside, all wanted a copy of this. Um, where he shows, whether it's an utilitarian theory or teleological theories or deontological theories, all of them have serious faults. Ethics, which means, why should I be good? The question is, why should I be good? What is good? What is bad? And why should I be good? If these are the questions. And every theory has a way of trying to answer. And then he takes up the theories from Indian philosophy also. And he shows that they, they have, all have their problems. And then he comes to Advaita Vedanta and shows how it can provide a solid justification. You see the problem in ethics, in, this, in philosophy, from a long time has been that they put, the way they put it, especially in Western uh, philosophy, it equally applies to Indian philosophy also. That you cannot derive an ought from an is. Ought means you ought to do this. You cannot derive it from what ex exists. Science is ethically neutral. Science has its own internal ethics, what, what constitutes good science and bad science. But as far as the world is concerned, time, space, matter, energy have nothing to say about what is good and bad. So why the doctors will show that your smoking is bad? Yeah, smoking is bad for your health. But ultimately after that, should you smoke or not? That is a moral decision left to you. How can you determine that? So, um, science is generally value neutral. The, or the, let's put it this way. The physical universe is value neutral. You cannot derive ethics and values from matter and energy and time and space. Then what do you derive it from? So there have been these attempts and all of them have deep problems. And Vivekananda's claim was, no, there should not be a split between um, ethics and metaphysics between what is and what ought to be. What ought to be should be based on what is. It should be based on a theory of reality. And so he derives ethics from this oneness. That's, that's a remarkable uh, thing. It, I'm sure it will gain uh, popularity slowly. And just by the way, Ayan Maharaj gave a talk here. Those of you who saw the talk. So it's get, the book is getting nice reviews. I just got two reviews from India. One from, I think, the Indian Express or something. And another one from, a uh, technical one, from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Mumbai. From Notre Dame. From, from Notre Dame? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's getting very good reviews. Very good. Thank you. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu